Welcome to the Trojan Talk Podcast. Big week, big week ahead for the podcast. I'm Ryan Young, your host as always. We're going to give you not one but two podcasts this week. Normally, I close the podcast by saying we'll try and find another great guest for next week. Stay tuned. It's already happened. In fact, it's already taped. And I'm not going to spoil it. Surprise, because I'm just not. And I think the anticipation is going to is going to mount and you're going to be even more excited when you see who we got and the conversation we had on, well, we'll just say later this week. But today, we have a podcast for you today that I've also been really excited to roll out. I went up to Orem, Utah over the weekend for a big O-line, D-line showcase. And in these times when there's nothing else going on, football or seven on seven or anything it was like an oasis in the desert to have some actual action to cover and break down and evaluate and I actually had a really good time there's a bunch of coverage up on the site at trojansports.com usc offensive line commits mason murphy and saya mapakai tolo i'm pretty confident i nailed that i i asked him three times how to pronounce it and I, I did practice. I want to perfect it, but we're going to go with that for today. We're both there working out at the Giant Skills Showcase in Orem, Utah. And I posted a video of all their, or most of their reps on the site, on trojansports.com. We had interviews with both of them. Mason Murphy, I, you know, I, he was, interestingly, he was kind of the first domino in USC's recruiting resurgence this spring he committed back on march 11th and prior to his commitment usc had not gotten the 2021 commit since jake garcia back in september so a few months had gone by no 2021 commits which is not unusual for that time of the year but anyways mason murphy commits march 11th and then it starts it seemed like Every week or two weeks thereafter, there was another big commit following. And it just kept snowballing in a great way to the point where now USC is ranked number three in the rivals' recruiting rankings after picking up another big addition on Sunday, that being four-star cornerback commit Prophet Brown from Northern California. We'll get to that later. But anyways, Mason Murphy was and is rated a three-star prospect, but... I know that many people who have evaluated him are convinced that he is a much higher tiered prospect. And I had only really watched his highlights. I've seen him at one camp. So getting to watch him all weekend, uh, I too come away convinced that he is not only a four-star, but maybe a high four-star. And I say that just based on both uh, his combination of frame. He's very strongly built. He reminds me of Jason Rodriguez uh, in, in that way, just in terms of you look at him and go, yeah, this, this guy's a college offensive lineman. Uh, Jason Rodriguez, of course, being the 2019 uh, offensive line signee for USC. But Mason Murphy combines that physique and strength and uh, just power with a, a great nimbleness and agility. I mean, he just moves really well for a guy his size. And I also really like his attitude. He is just highly, highly driven to maximize every ounce of potential he has. 
And normally when you say something like that, you're talking about the guy who doesn't have high upside and they're getting the most out of their abilities. That's not what I'm saying here. I think he has really high upside, but I just think that he's never going to be satisfied. He's always going to keep pushing for more and more and more in his game. And so I don't know what my actual ranking would be among the 2021 commits who, I, who I'm most confident in having a great college career. But Mason Murphy is way up there. And after seeing him at this uh, camp and showcase, that just uh, affirmed it even more for me. Saya is a really interesting prospect in his own right. He's, he's more raw. And after watching him this weekend, I think I saw exactly what Tim Drevno and the USC staff like in him. He's 6'5", he's, he's 250 right now. He's a very slender 250. And you can just see that he can put on a lot more good weight, a lot more good bulk, and really develop that body and get up to a, a very mobile and potentially powerful offensive lineman in time. He's, he's very athletic. He moves very well. He's just he's just too slender right now, you know, to play at the college level. And he's got plenty of time to get there. He told me that the staff has talked to him and wants him to get up to 285, 290, or 280, 290. And he's, uh, he's really taking that seriously and trying to get close to that before he gets on campus. And I was glad I could get up there and get video of both those guys so our subscribers could see kind of really in-depth what they look like going through reps and stuff. I would encourage anyone to check out those clips and look at it. But also bear in mind, I don't even know fully how to evaluate one of these O-line, D-line camps where they're not wearing pads, but they are doing one-on-one drills and the object, at least for the competition's sake, is to not let the defensive end get by you and grab this cone, which uh, ostensibly represents the quarterback. But what that leads to, the, the lack of pads and, and the, the stated goal of protecting the cone, is that you have guys you know, backpedaling 12 yards in a few seconds, but keeping the guy away from the cone, that's considered a win. Obviously, that doesn't really transfer over to a football game. You wouldn't see the left tackle backpedal 12 yards in three seconds and, and feel good about that play. So don't get hung up in the optics, I guess, or for lack of a better word. In talking to talent evaluators and college coaches, I just kind of picked their brain about how they evaluate these things. And they said it's really not about the results to them. It's about how a guy moves and just looking at just how he carries his weight, his footwork, his agility, everything else. And I think that's what really shined through with Mason Murphy and and Messiah as well. So uh, check those out. But that was a, a long, long, long rambling way of me saying that I've had a great podcast recorded for several days that I wanted to get up last Friday. And I thought this camp was a Saturday-Sunday deal until I double-checked the schedule and saw it start Friday. Uh, this being on Thursday when I realized this. So instead of spending that night producing a podcast and getting it ready, I said, I got to get on the road and drive to Utah. So the podcast kind of got put on the back burner, but I'm really excited to roll it out for you guys because it's it's two great segments. As you know, we've gone really heavy on interviews through this pandemic because guys have been available, accessible, and and willing to do it. And I've I've tried to mix up doing coaches and players. Uh, On this one, we're going to lead it off with USC safety Isaiah Polamau, who, as you'll hear me say on the podcast, 
in talking to him, I, I truly thought he was one of the most improved players over the course of last season. He was getting a lot of criticism early last year for his tackling, and the advanced metrics backed it up. That he was having a lot of missed tackles. Greg Burns, the former defensive backs coach, really harped on, on him with that relentlessly all last season. And one of the telling moments was in the Colorado game. I think it was in the fourth quarter. It was late. It was an important series. And he helped pull him out off the field because he was making a point that he wasn't he wasn't making the adjustments that were being emphasized in terms of tackling. Really, from that point forward, if you look at the PFF, Pro Football Focus Advanced numbers, his tackling numbers became one of the best on the team. And he acknowledged that, that was he knew that that was an area holding him back early on. I probably could have assumed this, but I didn't really think about it until he brought it up in this conversation. He talked about how some of that was just uh, apprehension about how his surgically repaired shoulder was going to perform and hold up. And that was really weighing on him. And I think that's a underrated factor we don't always consider with guys who get injured is it's not just about healing physically. It's about healing mentally and trusting that whatever is it, whether it's a knee or a shoulder or an elbow, whatever, trusting that to do everything that you would do before, not wanting to re-injure it and face another lengthy rehab. So in hearing him talk about it, it made total sense why he would he would have had a little bit of a mental obstacle there early last season that he eventually got over. He led the team in their interceptions. You know, overall, I, I think it was a fine, you know, average, a little above average season. But I do think he has the potential to take a leap this year if he carries over the way he finished and just being a year older, a year more experienced, and, and being in this new defense. I also talked to him about this defense, which everyone has told me, including Tyler Lando, including Craig Niver, that the safety positions are as important as any spot on the defense. It's really the nucleus of the whole operation and I tried to pry as much insight about that out of Isaiah as possible so we got some perspective there and then finally I think everyone knows that that he's related to the legend Troy Palomalu but I'd never really talked to him about it I never asked him questions about it I didn't know what their relationship was, how close they were. So we get into that. I thought it was really good stuff. And unfortunately, I got to that at the end of the podcast, and I was already like way over time with him. I try and stick to the budget of the time, but we get rolling with good questions, and it keeps going. Anyways, I couldn't push it any further with Isaiah, so I got as much on that as possible. And I'll probably write a breakout story for the website off that for those that don't listen to the podcast. But I think that interview all the way through is really interesting. Then I bring on Adam Gorney, our familiar rivals recruiting analyst you guys have heard a bunch of. I said, Adam, do uh, you have 10, 15 minutes to do a podcast segment? We ended up talking for like 45 minutes. And it's really good stuff. Last week on the site, he did a series for rivals that we also ran on TrojanSports.com, examining the name, image, and likeness, I don't know what you would call it, legislation, future, whatever, for college football. It's coming to college football soon, where players will finally be able to cash in and receive money based on the value of their name, image, or likeness. People know that term. They know name, image, likeness, uh, NIL. I don't know that they know the ins and outs of it. And this series that Adam undertook was really intensive, exhaustive, and, and answered a lot of questions or shed a lot of perspective. He talked to 
branding experts. He talked to a couple college programs about their expectations for it. He talked to a ton of recruits. He talked to our good buddy Brady McCullough from the LA Times, who has been covering name image like this from the very onset of it becoming a, a viable reality. I would encourage everyone to go back and read that whole series, but if you're not going to, I, we summarize a lot of the key stuff and really get Adam's takeaways on it. And I just thought it was a really interesting conversation. Just for timing elements, you're going to hear me reference in both interviews saying this week, this week. I, I, by that, I meant last week because that's when I re- intended to post this to so just understand the gap in time. And then lastly, when I talked to Adam Gorney, the announcement hadn't yet been made by the CIF, the California Interscholastic Federation, that there would be no high school football in the fall in California. Uh, that came down Monday. But even as we were talking at the end of last week, it was presumed that that was going to be the case. So I get into that with him. I think his responses and perspectives still stand. And it's really interesting how that might play out this fall in terms of will guys look to go out of state and, and find a state where they can play their senior seasons? Or will they just pack it up and uh, will there be a, a big crunch of guys wanting to be early enrollees and just get to college even even quicker? So we cover all that. I'm really happy with this podcast all the way through. I hope you enjoy it. I will stop rambling very soon, but the last thing to touch on would just be the big news on Sunday of, I already mentioned at the top of the show, of USC landing a commitment from four-star top 200 prospect Prophet Brown. They recruited him as a cornerback. That gives USC two four-star cornerbacks. It gives USC five four-star top 250 defensive backs in this class which is just great on its own but it's really significant when you juxtapose it against the 2020 class when they signed zero defensive backs despite trying despite much effort so it surprised me on the message board on Trojan Talk that there's been some frustration with Dante Williams, who uh, obviously is the new cornerbacks coach, but the vaunted recruiter hired away from Oregon, the much ballyhooed recruiter. And people, I guess before last week, were, were wondering why he hadn't produced the expected results. And I was trying to say all along that, well, he kind of has, because while they hadn't gotten their cornerback spots filled yet, he was the lead recruiter for four-star safety Anthony Beavers. He was, along with Craig Niver, a major force in the commitment of four-star safety Kellen Bullock. He was the lead recruiter for four-star linebacker Julian Simon. So he was already making a major impact on this class. He then gets four-star cornerback Jalen Smith earlier uh, this month, a few weeks ago, and gets Prophet Brown. So I think you can look at it in totality now and say that Dante Williams has most definitely delivered on the hype that accompanied his hiring in February. USC now has, like I said, the five defensive backs committed. They would still like one more cornerback if possible, but they're not going to reach. So there's a few names on the list, obviously names people know. Sierra Wright, the local four-star prospect from Loyola. Isaiah Johnson, who was in Bluefield, West Virginia, uh, reportedly transferred to St. Bernard's out this way. Now there's no season out here. I don't know what his status is, but he remains a top target. And then more of a long shot at this point, Nathaniel Wiggins, the four-star from Atlanta, 
who would most predict to LSU. Those are kind of the guys that they're still going after. I think they're content if they just keep the five DBs they have, but if they can get one more cornerback, they would. Meanwhile, I would expect that Dante is going to be involved in other other aspects of this class and trying to close the deal with some of their other top targets like Corey Foreman, like Ethan Calvert, the four-star linebacker. I think they're going to use him wherever he can be of most benefit to to keep closing the deal with these guys. Just to tie a bow on the Prophet Brown stuff, though, what's significant is not that it's another four-star commit. It's that nobody knew this was coming until uh, a couple days, a few days before it happened. Everyone, I don't want to say everyone, but the consensus was that he was bound to Oklahoma uh, or that even that Oregon might be even higher above USC on the list. And Dante closed really strong. There was a lot of people that kind of pointed to that and said, this is what Dante does. Get used to this. He'll, he'll find a way to surprise you. And that's what happened. So enough about that. Enough from me, at least in this uh, monologue form. Let's get to the interviews. Let's bring on Isaiah Polamau. This interview, again, was taped last Thursday. So just remember some referencing time elements that that's when it was recorded. All right, we're joined by USC safety, Isaiah Polamau, who's entering a, a huge season for his career, coming off a year where I thought he was one of the most improved players on the team, now a, a key and central figure in Tyler Lando's new defense. First, how you doing? I'm doing good, Ryan. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining the show. There's so much I want to cover with you. I want to talk about this new defense. I want to talk about your new coaches. I want to talk about what you, you expect from yourself this season. But let's start in the present. You did a nice thing last week, giving back some meals around exposition. And what was your your motivation there, and, and what was it like to, to be a part of that experience? Uh, first, it was just an overall great experience. Um, it's always awesome giving back to people in need. But um, honestly, it was just a it was a dream of mine always growing up just to help people um, and just be a good person, really. So uh, I got the opportunity to hand out some meals after raising some funds, and I took the opportunity. What was the process of, of, of raising the funds and making that even possible? Uh, you know, I just had to reach out to some people and get some um, some money going and, and explain what I wanted to do and just... Um, talk about people uh, helping the community and taking care of the community. And um, so, after I was able to raise those funds, I just went to Chick Fil A and got about a hundred meals, and just went outside and handed them to people who was in need of uh, lunch. Was there one particular encounter that was most meaningful to you? Yeah, there was this. Um, there was this SC guy that was out there, and he he got a full. He got a a meal and after that he just was explaining to me how much it meant to him for an SC player to be out there during a time like this to be helping the community and and that just touched me because that's exactly why I it, that experience was exactly why I wanted to help I wanted to get into helping people you know just that touching feeling that I get when somebody explains to me how much it meant to them that, that was awesome for me yeah, that's got to be very reaffirming. To, it was exactly what you were aiming to accomplish. Do, do you have more plans or things you want to do in the future in that regard? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, when I 
Well, I mean, hopefully when I go to the league, I could use that platform to help people in a bigger manner. But, um, you know, I mean, I try to take the little things to try to do the little efforts to help people as well. So hopefully I could continue to do stuff like this uh, in the future. Well, good stuff. Well, steering it a little bit back to football, uh, you've been back. I assume you've been going through the voluntary workouts on campus? Yes, sir. Kind of give fans a, a glimpse into what that entails, what you guys are able to accomplish, and how is it different from the the player-run practices from previous summers? Uh, we actually just started working out on the field now, too, getting some uh, like individual drills in. So, I mean, um, comparing that to a PRP, it's, it's not much different, you know. Um, it's just based on us. We're out there. We're still social distancing. You know, it's um, some procedures that we have to go through in order to be uh, to continue working out and stuff. But um, it's it's no different than a PLP, really. Um, the workouts, the training sessions, um, they're they're intense. You know, it's 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 good to be back. That's the whole reason why we're here and we're doing what we're doing. But um. The procedures to even getting in to campus, onto campus, is, you know, it's um, very meticulous. They take it very serious. Um, like I said before in previous interviews, I said that, you know, you have to take these questionnaires, you have to get your temperature checked, um, and then after that, it's you, you're always masked on, you're always social distancing yourself from other people, so it's... Uh, these precautions that we take, it's very serious telling about them, and um, they're, they're very, yeah, they take, they're all about the details. It's definitely a different time. What was it like just being able to get around your teammates for the first time in, in months and months, and how nice was it just to have some semblance of normalcy back in that process? And it was awesome to see my boys again, uh, honestly, you know, even if it's just we're out there running or conditioning like it's just good to see my guys back good to be around the same people that have the same goals as me and the same love for the game as me so i mean uh being back with each other is is, is everything that's really why we want to get the team back together that's why we're pushing so hard for this season like really just to get the guys back together and to play some football I know that everyone may have different opinions on all this stuff. Uh, do you have any hesitation about playing the season and being increasing your exposure possibly to, to the virus? Uh, how do you kind of view all that stuff? You know, I, I'm definitely a little, uh, a little scared, a little, uh, because there's just so much uncertainty about everything. You know, there's, there's no guarantee to our safety, but like at the end of the day, I see it like this. Um, I'm I'm in the position of where I'm at because of USC. If they say we have a season coming up and there's a game coming up this weekend, well, I'm preparing myself to play a game this weekend. I understand with all these uh, with the sickness and and all these um like people being cautious about it. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I want to play. I want to play football. I want to get back together. I want to have some type of normal life, you know. But it's tough with this, with everything going on. Yeah, it's definitely tough. And I, I'm not asking for specifics here, but I'm just curious your opinion. Do you think that there will be 
any players who opt out. We've seen it in professional sports with the NBA and the MLB. I'm sure there's going to be college players across the country that just say, I'm not taking the risk. What's your expectation for, for your team? Yeah, I definitely expect some some resistance to a season. Um, I'm not sure how many people, but I, I definitely believe that there will be some type of resistance from a couple of players just because they're, they're um, thinking about themselves. And it's, it's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's, of course, think about yourself in a time like this where really that's all you can think of and it's hard not to, you know. But um, I definitely believe there's going to be some people that's hesitant to, to come back to the team, come back to playing. But, um, yeah, man, I don't – that's, that's going to be hard. Well, just lastly on that, because I do want to get into other stuff, the actual testing process, is is it you guys go in every week or every other week? How does it work, and, and how long does that all take? Just kind of take me through that part of it. Yeah, uh, the testing, it, it's kind of – they make it real easy. Um, it's probably like a five- to ten-minute process, but um, you get a test every week because they, they want to just make sure they want to keep up on it. And they want to be, as soon as somebody is testing positive, they want to be on it right away. They want to take care of it uh, pronto. So, yes, we do take a, a test every week, and it's probably like a five- to ten-minute process. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens. I mean, Obviously, we've already had the announcement last week that the Pac-12 is going to a conference-only season. I want to get your reaction on that, but also how much discussion was there among your teammates when that news came came down? Man, that, that was a tough hit to our team because we were everybody on the team was looking forward to this Alabama game. I think that that's definitely sickening to me, uh, saddening, because I see it as a money game. Um, everybody's going to be making money that game. It's, it's a big national televised game it's everybody's watching it it's a historical game it's a it's like come on usc versus alabama yeah it doesn't get any better than that there's so much history behind it it's man even even with it gone at the end of the day any type of season is good really yeah i was going to ask that what's your confidence that there's going to be a season in any fashion you know i think about this a lot be honest because I'm very I'm hoping and praying for a season but in the back of my mind it also I also think uh, how, how can they guarantee our safety how can they guarantee that the other team will be safe or is taking the same uh, precautions that we're taking because I know that we're taking the extreme precautions about everything like I don't know how serious the other team is about their their safety and health, so like it is definitely tough. Um, I don't I don't know, man. Um, but like I said, I'm hoping and praying for a season, and I'm preparing for a season. Yeah, nobody knows. Nobody has the answers. I think we're all we're all in the same boat. Uh, just trying to be optimistic. Well, let's get into lighter stuff and, and more exciting stuff. You said that Alabama would have been a money game. This is kind of a money season for you. How do you look at this at this pivotal year in your career and and everything that's at stake? Uh, I definitely thought that this season was going to be huge for me. Um, I thought this first season was kind of a, a real learning experience for myself because I, this was my first real healthy season. So uh, I was definitely excited to get back out there. Uh, I have a lot of growing to do. I have a lot of work to 
put in. Um, I just have a big step to take this season. It was going to be everything for me. I mentioned at the top that I thought you were one of the most improved players over the course of last season. And I remember you and I kind of talked about that after a practice late in the year, just about what you worked on with your tackling and everything else. When you look back on last year, what strides do you feel you made? Uh, I definitely look back, and the first thing I see is uh, my tackling. Uh, I think that was everything for me. I think the first couple games, the first half of the season, I really I wasn't playing scared, but I was playing cautious because of my injuries and because of my shoulder. Sure. I didn't really understand. I didn't know how how strong it was. I didn't fully understand how much impact I could take until uh, a couple games in to where I realized, like, okay, I'm good. I could play. I can get this worry out of my mind, this doubt out of my mind. I could just play free. So after I understood that, it just I just kind of let go of my fear of being hurt again. So what's the area that you want to show this year that you've taken a step in? What's kind of your challenge to yourself to to prove or or show in this in this twenty twenty season? Uh, I really just want to show domination. Uh. I think that with this defense, I think it puts me in the position to make plays and, and make multiple plays. And I think that, I mean, I, I love that. I love the way we 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 disguise stuff. I love the way we bring the house. I love the way we don't bring the house. I love this defense, to be honest. And I think this is uh, going to be a great season for us. Well, I definitely want to ask you about Tyler Orlando. Obviously, a high-energy guy. We could see that just in our limited exposure and in a press conference and, and that one practice. What was your first impression of Tyler Orlando when he took over and, and first introduced himself to you guys? <laughs> uh, when, I, when I first met this uh, coach, he was we, it was in a meeting, and he came out with so much energy. I just thought to myself, like, man, this guy is crazy. <laughs> this guy is crazy about football. He loves this stuff. Like, he, he you could really feel his passion and, and his love for this game. And it just bleeds over to the coaches, and now it's just going to bleed down to us as players as we really learn this defense and really start to understand uh, the, the strengths and weaknesses of it. It's it's everything to us. Where I'm really excited. What is going to be the biggest difference in his scheme versus what you've been playing in? Uh, I always thought we were a fast and and run to the ball defense, but I think. We're going to take another step to that. I think we're going to utilize our speed and just ferocity and just swarm the ball. I think I think this defense is exactly that. We're all about running and hitting and just really being accountable. You do your job and everything works. I think a little bit about this defense, too, is like we're, we're always bringing something, so it's it's good. That's what I like. I like to be stay aggressive. I've talked to Todd about it, I've talked to Craig Niver, and they both really emphasized how important both safety positions are in this scheme. Kind of elaborate on the role that you're envisioning for yourself and how pivotal it is to executing what they want to do in this defense. Yeah, this this defense is all about safety communication and safeties. Um, we, we call the plays, we make all the calls, we make all the coverages coverage calls, um, it, it all depends on us. If we make one wrong call, the defense is messed up. If we don't make a call, the defense is messed up. So it it all falls on us. But 
that's something that I accept. I accept that that challenge to knowing the defense, knowing each position, knowing uh, the strengths and weaknesses of our defense. That just makes me uh, have to be a better student of the game. And, um, you know, I like that. I like to, to work on my football IQ, and, and that's something that they definitely helped with, uh, especially Coach Nyberg. He's helped me understand why we do a specific defense uh, compared to a different one, or, like, he just helps me understand the bigger picture other than rem- uh, remembering what I do in a play. He helps me understand that why that play works. As far as the communication standpoint, what's the process of learning the new language of this defense and learning all those calls, and, and how much time is it going to require until you have a command over that? Yeah, I mean, this, def- uh, this defense is definitely tricky. Um, it took some time just to get the language down. Um, it's, it's definitely different coming from uh, Coach P to this defense. The, the language is a little bit different, but it, it's almost all the same language at the end of the day because, you know, you, you can compare it like some of the things are the same. So that helps. But um, communication is everything. Like I've always said this, well, if everybody's on the same page, we play so much faster and uh, better. Uh, you play free. You don't think about anything when everybody's on the same page. There's no thinking. It's just reaction and, and aggressiveness. Now, you were you know, in the free safety role last season. Is that kind of similar to what you're going to be in this defense, or are there different things asked of the safeties in terms of uh, just how the two roles are different? Uh, uh, the roles are a little bit the same, but different at the same time. Uh, uh, we, we like to preach versatility, being versatile. If everybody is able to do the same, or if everybody is able to play the same position, then they don't know who's going to be uh, that position. You know, if they don't know if Greg Johnson's going to be the nickel one game, and then now I'm the nickel the other game, and he's moving back to safety. That's that's what I love about this defense. We're interchangeable. The safeties, the nickels, they're all interchangeable. It's the same position. So if you really understand the defense, then we can make this thing look like it's something crazy, and it's really confusing to the offense and, like, that's what I love about Coach Orlando and Coach Kniper. They really help us understand that aspect of it. Interesting. Yeah, as far as the positions and, like, me and Talanoa playing a specific side, uh, really we're going to be moving around a lot. It's a lot of different disguises to this. It's it's it's, it's, gonna, it's a whole new defense. <laughs> That's, I, I love this. Going back to the communication part, I, I'm always fascinated by how this stuff works pre-snap. Give me a sense for, for how much can change based on your read and, and the call that, that you make. Yeah, um, I mean, we have a we have a rebuttal for everything the offense does. So if they motion a guy to the other side of the formation, we got a guy that's traveling with them, or we got a safety that's rotating to change the coverage over there and changing the coverage backside. Or, you know, it, it's, it's every little... We have answers for every little thing that the offense does. Even if they flip the running back to the other side, like we have a call where it'll change our entire defense, really, into just to accommodate that that run or like, you know, so it's definitely a lot of little things that we have to understand before 
the offense does it. So we have to stay on our ten toes and be able to uh, react and make the new calls. Obviously, you guys have been doing these these Zoom uh, meetings, and you've been going over the defense. But how much how much command can you really have of a, of a new defense if you haven't been able to out be out there working on it? What, what's your concern about just the installation process and where it's at? Uh, I think my biggest concern is just getting the reps in, like you said. I think repping it out on the field is is so much is such a great learning experience for people because they can see the actual calls being made, they can see what you're doing. So I think that's that's everything, and that's very important to what we do. But, um, you know, because of everything, we haven't really been getting able, uh, being able to get on the field and, and rep some stuff out. But our coaches actually sent us some cones that we set up as an offense, like as, as an offensive skill guys and formations, and we kind of just do it by ourselves like that, like, go through the formations as like that and make a call and then make the calls to that call. Did you spend much time looking back over film of, of Todd's defenses at Texas and and taking anything from that? Oh, yeah, we definitely watch a lot of film. It, it's a whole lot of film uh, in our meetings. And the way that they uh, show, like, old film of, of Coach Nygaard at Houston or, or Texas, you know, their defense is, is we can – see ourselves how it's supposed to be run and how they messed up and didn't do it right so I mean other than repping it out I think that is also helpful um, seeing how one defense ran it in the game and messed it up and then how one, they ran it again and did it good I think uh, film watching is, is a great experience uh, to helping people uh, learn the defense more Definitely. Well, just a few more for you. You've been very generous with your time here. We talked about Tyler Orlando. What's Craig Niver's style, and and what's the challenge for you having a third position coach in three years? Uh, coach Niver is, is uh, man, <laughs> that guy is all energy. He, he's he's a great coach, though. Um, he really helps. Like I said before, he really helps us understand the bigger picture of football. He breaks he he breaks down a play and helps us understand the coverage behind it, and then he takes us through some film of how other defenses ran it and how other uh, teams have ran it, and he shows us their mistakes and and the rebuttal what the offense could do to rebuttal our defensive uh, attack. So I mean, he he helps us. He's more of the bigger picture guy, understanding. He's more of the football IQ guy. He's He's intense. He's all about ball, and he's—I love it. I love his energy that he brings. It's, it's very intense. It's, it's get to work. Really, it's grind time when he when he's in the room. Is it tough having three position coaches in three years? And I know they all probably teach things a little differently, even just with technique. Yeah, they all teach their different style of coaching, but I. I really appreciate everything that all these other coaches have given me because I've got a little bit, of, I've taken a little bit of uh, work from each of them. You know, with Coach Bradford, I got some technique and stuff. Uh, I got some more technique from Coach Burns. And now with Coach Niver, I'm getting the bigger picture. My football IQ is growing. I'm, I'm seeing things differently, not only, and also working on my technique. 
Well, great stuff. The last thing I want to cover with you, and I know this is something you've probably talked about a ton. I've never talked about it with you. Obviously, your connection with your uncle, Troy Palomalu, he came back around the team last year. I know that was big for a lot of guys. What was it like for you to have him in the locker room? Uh, it's, it's, it's such a great feeling because that's family, but it's, he's still part of this Trojan family. It, it's, it's such an, an electric feeling with him in the locker room because so many guys look up to him with me you know it's not just me i see him as family but other people see him as a hero so other people see him as a mentor as a as a leader as like you know this this person that just has been there and done what we are trying to achieve so i mean he just he comes in and he drops nothing but knowledge on us what was your connection with with him growing up did you get to interact much and uh, obviously, you, you got to kind of follow the very end of his career there. What was that like for you, just knowing that this this person who is family is, is one of the, the greats in football? Yeah, it was, I mean, growing up, just watching him was, it's always electrifying. It's always awesome watching him because he does stuff that not a lot of people can do. But, um, you know, I mean, of course, with his football season, he was never really able to have that much free time. But uh, I got to hang out with him more and more this past uh this past off season i've been working with him trying to get some uh just trying to get right and he's been putting me on game i mean just it's just insane the, the type of knowledge that he's uh put on me. that's that's so cool so, so give me a sense for for how often you've gotten to to meet up with him this off season and and what that's been like uh i was working with him uh from may until our mandatory, uh, not mandatory, but voluntary workouts. So I was with him for a while. Uh, he was just talking about me, uh, philosophy, uh, talking about where he, in his career, was feeling down and out and how he got out of that slump. And he just talked, it was just a whole lot of knowledge being spoken uh, to me because he was just, you know, he was telling me everything about his career and places that I could do better in or something that, that hurt him that could help me in the future. Yeah, just stuff like that. How many people were out there with you all? Uh, it was just me and him. Wow. Yeah. So, so I mean, it, was a, it was an awesome experience. I loved being out there and just getting the work in. I imagine not even just a football standpoint, but but just to grow a stronger connection personally with with your uncle, that must have been special in that regard too. Yeah, that was it was it was just an awesome time being up there around my family. Is is there is there one singular thing that resonates the most from those sessions or the lessons he gave you that you're going to carry into this season? Um. Yeah, I think that uh, I talked about um, being in a slump and like in the game when you're in the game and you're just not really feeling it. You're kind of out of it. He just taught me some breathing exercises that that I think kind of helped me tremendously because it helped me keep me grounded. And instead of being too high or too low, because uh, this past season I found myself being too high or too low in a game emotionally that kind of got me just messed up out of my game so i think that him helping me with that in that breathing exercise and just 
staying grounded and staying level kind of helped me a little bit because it just keeps me level-minded. It doesn't, it doesn't like put too much stress on me. It doesn't like take me out of my game. It just keeps me right in my zone. Awesome. Great stuff, Isaiah Polamau. Thanks so much for your time. It went way too long, but I really appreciate it. No, thank you, man. I appreciate you. Okay, thanks to Isaiah Polamau for all that time. Really enjoyed that. and He's a guy that I knew would be great on this platform. He just really expresses himself and conveys himself in an engaging way. And I, I try and factor that in when I think about who I want to have on the podcast. Uh, and I thought he was, he was really good. Let's get to Adam Gorney and talk about name, image, likeness, and some recruiting stuff. Adam, how are you? Great, Ryan. How are you, man? Excellent. Um, I hope everyone's been following Adam's series all week long on – Rivals, and it's been on our homepage all week, uh, attacking every angle of name, image, and likeness and the ramifications that's going to have on college football in the very near future. Adam, this was a big undertaking. You, you really hit it from all angles. What was the most interesting thing you learned during this process? Yeah, I think uh, I went into it with a preconceived notion that it was going to be a little bit of the Wild West, and if you were an alumni of a school, you can just – give money to someone, claim it's fair market value, and they can take it and do your commercial and, and move on. And that's not what it is at all, really. <laughs> um, there's going to be some sort of oversight board. Now, if that is the NCAA, um, if there's going to be a third party involved, but there is definitely going to be someone to approve every deal that comes across the table for every athlete um, and we really just kind of focused on the football aspect of things. Um, but it's going to be for every sport across the board. So if you're a very popular women's basketball player at USC and someone wants to give you $2,000 to do a social media campaign on Twitter to your 50,000 followers or however many you have, that's going to have to be reviewed by someone. It's going to have to make sure it's not a pay-for-play scheme. Um, and then once approved, you're going to be able to go ahead and do that. So it's going to be much more complicated than I had first imagined. And um, it's gotten all the way to, you know, congressional hearings of the Commerce Committee about who's going to be in charge of this, who's going to handle all of these transactions. And really their concern is making sure recruiting is not impacted at all or as you know as much as it possibly can't be um by these decisions so for example if you're uh if you work at nike and you want the best football player in the country to come to oregon you can't give him a million dollars and a nike contract to do that that's not going to be what this is now some would argue that's not fair market at all um but that's not what this is going to be so no pay for play schemes and coaches aren't going to be at all involved in this. And so now there's going to be much more of a delicate balance between coach and player um, because, you know, coaches like to have control and they like to have them in the weight room at 6 a.m. and in class and then at practice and then film study. Well, a lot of these guys, you know, depending on who you talk to, some people think a lot of people are going to be involved in these and some people think not many people at all will be involved in them. But if someone needs to go shoot, you know, in an L.A. studio, a commercial from 9 a.m. to 11, that brings in an entirely different ballgame of who, who 
whose time this really is. So um, there are so many angles to this. It's just really kind of in the infancy stage, but there will be legislation at some point. Um, ho- and everyone sort of is hoping for nationwide legislation on this, not state by state. Right. Because if you are in California, you can't really have different rules than if you're in Florida, um, because then states might write legislation to attract players there, and that might be seen as pay-for-play. So there are just so many angles to this. We tried to just kind of get a baseline of what we're looking at, kind of answering some questions about what more of what this isn't than what it is, because when this first came out, everybody had an idea that, hey, uh, you know, a Texas oil tycoon could give a kid $5 million if he wanted to, and that's just not how it's going to be. Yeah, I mean, I definitely appreciate and understand the need for oversight and uh, fair market value, uh, checks and balances. But (laughs) there's going to be a massive gray area here, and the NCAA already has a a tough time, as is, policing their hard and fast rules where there is no gray area. So it's going to be interesting. And and if you bring in a third party to kind of dictate which and determine which deals are – pay for play which ones are recruiting in, in inducements that is going to be very very difficult you're going to have to have a board and as as ludicrous as this sounds you're going to have to have a board of people that don't have any ties or any sort of care if you know clemson's football team wins and gets those players on campus or if they're happy there so yeah there there there's definitely going to be oversight on this that is still to be determined about who is going to oversee it, whether it's the NCAA, which is already sort of overrun. But a lot of the discussion is around coaches saying, you know, it's kind of a two-way street here. Coaches aren't going to be allowed to set up deals. Um, they're not. So if you go to Clemson on a visit, it would be probably an NCAA violation for any coach to say, if you come here, we can guarantee you $100,000 worth of deals. That That is not going to be allowed. Who's going to oversee those discussions? I don't know. That is where it gets very difficult um, in terms of really policing this if you're going to make an, a, a serious attempt to police this. Um, but what they can do and what some schools are doing, what we wrote about, like this is happening pretty broadly at Nebraska and some other schools, is they're developing these content teams. I talked to the guy at Florida about this. He's, his entire job is a digital content creator. Um, he sends out, you'll see them on Twitter all the time, the edits for certain recruits. That is in partly an attempt to build up their social media presence. So once they get onto campus, as a player, as a freshman, they can say, you were at 6,000 Twitter followers, we got you up to 55,000. Let's try to get you to a hundred thousand because then you, because then you will be able to get more NIL deals of greater value because you have more social media reach, and in essence, that is um, part of the recruiting game now. Um, one of the guys I talked to was a brand expert who said recruiting is going to be important. They're going to talk about academics. That's still going to be important. Facilities are going to be important. Uniforms are going to be important, and NIL is going to be important, where he wanted really sort of a database of this is how much money each player has made on each team, and you can look at that and kind of, mm. you know, kind of add that into your thinking, it's, which is an interesting aspect to this. 
Yeah, and, and it goes back to why it was so significant when USC not only doubled the size of its recruiting staff, but uh, a large chunk of that was devoting resources to the creative resources side, the creative media side, and getting another graphic designer, getting a, a couple of football-specific video guys, a still-to-be-filled position of a creative media director. And there's no doubt in my mind that Mike Bone and Brandon Sosna were, were thinking about NIL uh, as they were putting that plan together. Did you get any sense as you, as you got all the way into this from all angles, if a school like USC in a market like Los Angeles would have a pronounced advantage or, or disadvantage? Yeah, there, there seems to be two schools of thinking on this, and it'll be interesting to see which one plays out to be correct. One is the big market schools will do well because there are just more opportunities for kids to do social media campaigns, to do commercials, to do um, camps. So one of the things that a lot of people think are going to make a lot of kids money is if the quarterback, let's take Miller Moss, and Miller Moss is committed. He's now at USC. He's a freshman or a sophomore, and he goes all around Los Angeles running Miller Moss quarterback camps for, you know, kids. Each kid will pay $100, and Miller Moss pockets however much of that, uh, just like anyone else running a camp. Now, that is definitely um, lucrative, you know. But the other, the other school of thinking is, which might very well be possible, but the other school of thinking is that if you can go, you can go around Los Angeles and go, who's Miller Moss? And not many people are going to know. Yeah. So... When you say, ask that same question, who is Adrian Martinez in Lincoln, Nebraska, every single person will know. So if Adrian Martinez wants to hold an autograph session at the mall on a Sunday afternoon, he'll have thousands and thousands of people show up, and he can charge $20 or 10 or whatever he would like to charge for that, and he'll get paid a lot of money. So one school is the big markets will win um, and do well. The USC's, Miami's, Texas, um, those, those kinds of schools, just because there are so many people and so many opportunities. Um, but one person told me that, you know, they don't really, no one really wants to put the USC quarterback, unless he's a superstar, in their commercial. They want Brad Pitt and Jennifer Lawrence in, in LA, where in Clemson, South Carolina, or in Stillwater, Oklahoma, those guys, the second string offensive guard is going to make money because everybody wants to be around that program so much. So it's still kind of undetermined whether either the small, you know, the small college towns or the big city schools really hold an advantage here. Yeah, I, I can see both cases. And I think we're going to have to see that empirical evidence over a year or two before we really know where that advantage lies. Timeline wise, what's your expectation for when we get some uniformity on this and, and get the final I's dotted and T's crossed? Yeah, I, I was uh, in, in kind of in preparing this series, I watched a two and a half hour commerce uh, committee uh, hearing. And, and believe me, I don't want to ever do that again. That was that was brutal. So um, the. the the NCA, the NCA schools, um, the NCA board of directors, will be voting in January um, on kind of the, the the lay of the land, what they want, what is going to be included in this, what isn't, kind of kind of the ideas. So 
that's kind of the timeline there. Everybody at that Commerce Committee, uh, which included Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, um, uh, representatives from Old Miss and uh, an athletics director from Old Miss and and uh, and others, what they were real what they were really pushing was some sort of national legislation or at least guidelines from Congress before that meeting because they need to have kind of a framework to work around here. So uh, there is there is legislation already in California and Florida about this and what they don't want to do is have each state running their own NIL because um, that's going to be incredibly tricky Um, if I am a player from California and I go to Oregon can I make money in California but not Oregon can I make money while at Oregon but not when I get back to California how much money you know it, it seems to be unlimited money that you can make in California which looks like a recruiting inducement. Uh, if I transfer, does all my NIL go away? If I'm a graduate transfer, does it? All of those questions are problematic for state laws. So they were really pretty much um, asking, if not demanding, that Congress come up with some national framework to, to, for the NCAA to work around here because it's just going to be, I would think, very, very complicated if they if they have state laws uh, so many complications and I, I go back to an earlier point we touched on just the oversight and determining what's fair market value what's pay for play we're in the player empowerment era in professional sports and that kind of trickles down to college with, with this whole thing and i think you're going to see pushback from kids if they're told that that's not fair market value and they're going to say well the whole point of this is you can't infringe on what i on what i can earn off my off my name yeah, I, I think I think one of the mistakes that was kind of pushed, and and honestly, I don't even know who pushed it early on. I don't know if it was the media. I don't know if the NCA kind of you know spread this message. But having the idea that this is fair market value is absolutely not true. It's it's almost like if every actor before they could sign on to a movie had to have their contract reviewed by a third party to determine if they were value, if that was valuable, if, if the value was kind of in line with what others had made. Yeah. So if, um, if you can make a thousand dollars to do a Campbell's soup commercial in LA, uh, you can't make $10,000 doing it in Seattle, even if they determine, you know, if, even if the claim is that that's fair market value because someone was willing to pay it. You know, someone was willing to pay me that. So anything, you know, it's fair market value up to the point where it would be a pay for play scheme or a recruiting inducement. And then then it's going to be really kind of cut down. And we all know how the NCAA works. We all know how Congress works. This is going to be very slow. And then at the end, they're going to come up with some, you know, ramshod (laughs) group of uh, group of rules that is going to be questioned over and over again and probably look bad for a while until they can get a handle on this. So it's going to be kind of a tricky thing. Um, I don't know how you stop some of it. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how you, how in some of these small college towns, you can't basically recruit businesses to say, when these guys get here, give them all a thousand dollars in a commercial, you know, I mean, it's just, there are just so many questions 
about how this is going to work and how it's going to be fair um, that adds, you know, I think to our business even more intrigue and interest just because first, I don't know how many, how much, and I talked to a bunch of kids about this. I don't know how much they really kind of understand it themselves. Some said that they made their commitments with this in mind. Um, but I don't know if you'd actually talk to them, if they'd have a real good grasp of what that really meant. So I think, uh, you know, a lot of players in a lot of different ways will have the opportunities to make money, but it's certainly not going to be a situation where, you know, if a T Boone Pickens was still alive at Oklahoma state or some Texas oil tycoon at Texas A&M wanted to just throw money around to get players, that's, that is not going to be it. Yeah. I mean, uh, many questions, but you also answered many in this series. It was great. I really hope that all of our readers and listeners uh, take the time to go through it, uh, piece by piece it, it ran all week long on our site and on rivals you talk to branding experts you talk to our good buddy brady mccullough from the la times you talk to like you said a bunch of uh prospects and then you talk to guys from michigan and florida i'm curious was there uh, a lot of unwillingness from people uh, within programs to address this on the record yeah yeah there was um, and I can completely understand that. First, they don't know what they're really talking about yet. And not that they are, you know, uh, they're naive about it. They're, they just don't know what this is going to be. So when I talked to Matt Dudek from Michigan, on the record, he was basically saying, we don't know what this is, what this is yet. We were, you know, kind of given this idea that, you know, there's going to be name image like this. We're, you know interested in it i think we it could be part of our recruiting package that does very well um we're going to be very open to it and embrace it we're not going to reject it or fight against it um but we just don't know what it is we don't know what we can do we don't know what we can't do and so that's kind of part of it too is that the you know the rules haven't been set yet there's you know sort of a baseline of guidelines that have been kind of understood but um, exactly what they can and can't do, what they can and can't say on visits. Um, all of those things are still very much up in the air. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of schools like USC that we've talked about already that are already hiring, you know, these content creation teams. And we all know what that's for. Uh, we all know that it's going to be for NIL stuff and it's going to be for social media presence and ramping up the, you know, all of those kinds of things. And, you know, the, uh, the Florida, you know, creative director um, was basically saying, yeah, we want Florida fans to follow our, the guys we're recruiting and love them up and get their numbers up and, you know, send edits to them and all those kinds of things. That shows that we're very interested in them. And if we can use sort of the fan base as an extension of our recruiting arm, um, we're more than happy to do it. And so, um yeah, I think, but I do think that a lot of questions still remain. Um, but coaches will adapt quickly. They'll use this in recruiting very, very quickly. Not necessarily getting them deals if that's not allowed, but just um, you know, kind of saying, "Look what uh, JT Daniels got at Georgia over the last two years." You know, I mean, he got a he he did this deal, he did that deal. He's you know, we have these guys doing these deals and those deals, so. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it all plays out. But as we all know, coaches are going to use it to a recruiting advantage as much as they humanly, you know, as much as they can. Absolutely, and it's only smart for schools and programs to be positioning for that. USC, it, it, they've tweeted out um, 
social media impact numbers and, and how they stack up. They've, they've tweeted out, this is how our new Instagram page looks. Like They're promoting their various social media platforms and how much engagement they get already. And I, I think you can connect the dots there. But uh, great stuff on that. I can't have you on, though, and not talk some recruiting. Uh, I want to start with Ethan Calvert, the four-star linebacker, who is one of their top priorities at any position. I know you posted um, on our site a few weeks ago that you thought USC was the big front runner. How, how do you feel overall about where things stand with him? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's changed. Um, I still think USC is the team to beat for him. I like him a lot. He's a big, jacked-up, muscular linebacker. Um, kind of the size of Josh, Josh uh, height-wise, but the size of Bo, muscle-wise. So uh, it, it's a pretty good, compact linebacker there. I still think USC is the team to beat. I've heard nothing different. Um, I find it hard to believe that he's going to go to UCLA uh, if he's going to stay in town. And that's what, that's my sense is that he's going to stay local. So uh, I talked to him at a camp earlier this off season and he said, uh, you know, I could, I could stay close. I could play for, you know, a very historical and traditional team that has been doing very well over the years, right down the road for me. And, and I think that's going to be tempting for him. Um, it's a little curious that he hasn't made a commitment yet. He's kind of gone off the radar in terms of, talking about his recruitment over the last few weeks but my sense is that usc is you know putting the the hammer down on him as one of the top guys and usc still looks the best um between his front runners a lot of guys have seemed to go quiet right now and we don't have events where we you know see them in person and can, get, and can just knock out interviews like we normally would um so yeah I've, I've tried to reach out to ethan a few times a number of guys and they've just kind of gone in silent mode Another one, but you, you did talk to him, was Byron Cardwell, the four-star running back from San Diego. USC is extremely high on him. They have Brandon Campbell committed, but they need two running backs in this class. They didn't get any last cycle. And then he's – they have a handful of guys in that next tier if they can't get him, but they're holding out for him. And I remember from your report that he's in no hurry to make a decision. What's your read on, on his mindset right now? Yeah, I mean – when I talked to him last, and it was just a few weeks ago, um, it looked like it was starting to become more of a Pac-12 race of teams, but he is in no rush. He wants to take all of the visits that he had planned before. He said that he's not going to rush because other people are committing. He wants to take visits, and if other schools take you know, running backs, um, then that, that wasn't the place for him. So it looks like USC is definitely reserving a spot for him. Um, I think USC is, is slowly creeping into that leader role just because, you know, a lot of these kids who say Florida State and Michigan and they want to take all these visits, you know, a lot of times, uh, and rightfully so, it's, uh, it's a Pac-12 kind of battle, just like kids in Florida who want to visit USC generally end up in, in Florida schools. So, uh, especially during this time when it's uncertain, am I going to be traveling across the country to uh, to college, which is uh, another topic for another day. But I think uh, Byron Cardwell is definitely highly, highly interested in USC. He's looking you know, for a place that's going to get him the ball, and he's a great-looking kid. I saw him for the first time this offseason. We moved him up in the rankings. Definitely an impressive-looking running back who can move. Uh, could could very well fit into that USC offense. And so I would say right now uh, they are in that upper echelon of teams to beat. 
And, and they are they are going to be patient with him because he is the priority. So uh, they'll keep some guys on the back burner, I think. But he's definitely the uh, one of the top targets at any position uh, on their list right now. How about Sierra Wright? How do you feel about Sierra Wright? He, he's another guy who hasn't said much this summer about his recruitment, uh, but a guy very high on USC's list. Yeah, and it's it's going to be interesting to see what he does. Um, he is very serious about acting as in, in his future. Yeah, he's also very serious about business in his future, and that would you would think would lend toward USC being one of the front runners, which I think it is. The interesting part is he seems to be very interested in Texas. He seems to be very interested on on, on the Florida schools, Florida State especially. Um, he has family in Texas, so that could play a factor. Um, and I think Oregon and Arizona State are still very much hanging around here. So if you follow what he's saying about acting, he's if people don't know, he is the son, LeBron James's son in Space Jam 2. So when that's released, that will be C.R. Wright playing that role. <laughs> yep. He was supposed to visit a bunch of schools in North Carolina this offseason because he was shooting another television show out there. So he definitely is involved in this. Um, there's probably no better place than USC if you want to be an actor. And it's a very good business school, too. So um, I think that's going to be an interesting situation about how much he sees his football, the, his decision uh, just around football, or if he's going to really factor all of those things in. My guess is he factors all of those things in, and that's why I think USC is in a very good position. Um, but he's another one that does not seem to be in a major rush and really, really wants to get to Texas and A&M and, some of the, and Florida State and some other schools before he makes a decision. But I would say right now USC is pretty strong for him. Um, just a couple quick more quickly. Talk about guys who are quiet. JT Tweelamau, the five-star star defensive lineman from uh, up north, has been quiet his whole recruitment. Do you have any – is there any buzz whatsoever coming out of his camp as to where things are going? Uh, a little bit, and it's interesting. Um, there's a rumor that I can't confirm nor deny <laughs> uh, and get those anyone the, to those say Those are the best yet. rumors. Those are the best. Uh, that he is considering playing his senior year in Dallas, Texas. Now – I don't know what the connection is there. I don't know what school it would be. I don't know why he's doing that. But a few days ago, um, I had gotten a text about it and kind of tried to follow up with some people and have heard nothing about it. When you hear nothing about it, it usually means that there's some truth to it. And no one wants to talk about it. But we will see if that is true and if that plays any factor in his recruitment. I still think that uh, Ohio State is the team to beat by far. it always has been just a very uh, a school very high on his list for a long time. His teammate from Eastside Catholic, G. Scott, is there now. Um, the problem is, is that he can't get out and take these visits. So what, what JT did early in his recruitment was to say, I'm not going to rush this. I'm going to take my time. I will take visits later. Well, now is later, and he can't get on the road until at least September – and look, I, I think we all kind of see the writing on the wall. If there's a college football season, I find it highly unlikely that they're going to allow official visitors on campus. Uh, just from the logistics of having people in and out of airports and hotels and testing them and getting them on the sidelines and getting them in facilities and getting them in with academic counselors and all the things that go on are very intimate during these visits. Liability. And there's a whole, yeah, and there's a whole lot of 
human-to-human contact during those times. So that's going to be a very interesting thing that plays out through the rest of the summer into the fall. Um, And that's to say if there is a football season. Um, I would honestly almost believe that visits, both official and unofficial, um, would be better without a season um, just because uh, then you can limit, um, you know, how many people are coming on campus, how many people they're getting in contact with, all of those things. But uh, I would say Ohio State is the, is the team to beat. I still think if he stays in Washington, Washington is very much involved there. He's got his whole family, uh, at least a lot of family there. And if there was an out-of-state school that could get him, it would be Oregon because I continue to make the – he's a little bit of a shorter Eric Armstead. That's who he reminds me of mm-hmm. uh, completely, just this athletic specimen who can move across the defensive line who doesn't completely dominate every t- single time he's on the field, and it drives you crazy a little bit. But um, I think it's an outside shot for USC right now. Gotcha. Well, I, I still feel good about USC's chances with Aaron Armitage, the four-star DN from New, uh, yeah, New Jersey. I, th- I think that they might have been able to lock him up if he could have visited this summer. They'll certainly stay after him. And then, obviously, the, the big fish is Corey Foreman, who you reported uh, last week or so that you, th- you think it's becoming a Pac-12 battle with Oregon and USC, is, is that still how you feel a week later? And is there a reinforcement to that, that theory? Yeah, this is an interesting one too. And, and this is going to be, uh, I just know at the end, I'm going to pick the wrong school. I just, I just know, I just know it. He, when I talked to him a few weeks ago, he said he didn't have any leaders, but Clemson was still number one. So I don't know what that exactly means. Um, I talked to someone close to him a few weeks later and he said that he wasn't feeling Clemson anymore uh, because they took another defensive end and it looks like USC and Oregon are really the schools that are battling it out for him and so I kind of believe that I think the I think the Corey Foreman Mason Smith definitely playing together talk is overblown Um, I think they want to do that but it's just a question of where they're going to do that and if those are if Mason's schools are the same favorite schools are the same really as Corey's. And I just don't think it is. So um, it's going to be interesting because everybody, I, I also think the Corey Foreman playing with Drake Jackson talk is a little overblown um, because probably gets one year with Drake. And I don't know if that's enough is if that's compelling enough to get him to USC just for that. Um, He's kind of acknowledged that with me when I talked to him last, that that he realizes it's it's going to be a, a quick overlap of anything, and it's not going to be the biggest factor for him. Yeah, and it would be the same, it would be the same situation, even though he's not as familiar with this guy, if he goes to Oregon and plays with Kayvon Thibodeau for a year, who almost looks certainly to be a three and out. So it'll be interesting to see what he does. I, I've been told USC and Oregon are both right there. Both, you know, Oregon is aggressively recruiting him when they go after a guy and, and it's nonstop. You saw this with Justin Flo. You saw it with a lot of guys. Um, they, they seem to win out. Now, I, I just think Clemson is fading. If there's an SEC team in, involved seriously, I think it would be Georgia. Um, but I was also told I'm not, I don't know how crazy it is about going across the country again. So um, if, he, if he wasn't going to go across the country for Clemson, why would he go across the country for Georgia? So I think it's USC and Oregon. 
we'll see how this plays out because it has been changing. There's also rumors that he is transferring for his senior year. Now, th- those rumors have been following Corey Foreman for years at Corona Centennial that he was going to leave. I had heard he might it might have been at Modern Day last year. So um, we'll see if, if he ends up at Corona Centennial. I don't think that even matters in his recruitment where he goes. Um, but, you know, USC does have Drake Jackson there. They have Gary Bryant there. Those are Corona Centennial guys. That'll be interesting to see. But Oregon is definitely making a push here, um, and they've been able to come into Southern California and pretty much get whoever they want over the last couple of years. Yeah, and they haven't lost steam despite uh, the Dante Williams coup for USC. Oregon's still recruiting very well. Um, so I, I mentioned uh, Kingsley Suamatea at the top, the uh, four-star OL from Utah. I think we both agree he's, he's heading to Oregon most likely. He was out here wearing an Oregon hat when I talked to him, and he has not been to USC. He's been to Oregon. He wants to decide soon. That seems like a closed case. Yeah, I think so. He and Panay Sewell work out together. Um, when Panay is back in town, that's kind of, I think, this, the ceiling factor there. And again, he'll, uh, he won't have that opportunity to play with him. Um, but what he'll have is to be sort of talked about as the next Panay Sewell there. So we'll see how that plays out. He's close with Noah Sewell, who is now just a freshman at, at Oregon. I would be stunned if, if, if Stumate ends up anywhere other than Oregon. Um, and, and if it were to be anywhere else, I think it would be Utah. So uh, I, I have him to Oregon 100%, and uh, I'd even put money on it. And then just lastly, I'm gonna, I kind of broke up the last segment with, with Gorney because, again, we talked about the CIF stuff and the postponement of football until December and January. Practice can start in December, games in January. Uh, per the CIF announcement Monday. We had talked about that before the announcement came down, so some of the phrasing of the questions I asked and everything was was outdated, so I wanted to put a fresh intro on that, and then we'll just jump right into Adam's response about the uh, lack of high school football in the fall in California. So this is an interesting question that is, it seems like a simple one, but it's very complex because I've talked to people about this. There has been every opinion in the book thrown at me about what's going to happen in, including these private schools not not the modern days and boscos of the world but these not schools these private workout centers can form would form teams and go around the country playing other private mm. centers of, of teams mm. because if they have if they if if the kids can be homeschooled or will have to be, California now looks like um, almost all, at least seventy percent of the population as of today, will be uh, homeschooled. Uh, will have can't go to a, a facility. They'll they'll be being taught at home. What would stop a player from going to school during the day and then playing on a football team from winner's circle or ground zero or whatever at night there would be nothing to stop them of that so every kind of scenario is under the book i don't think that a lot of players um are going to flee the state to find somewhere else to play there will be some i think quarterbacks could do that maybe especially younger quarterbacks because they can always come back but i just don't see Corey foreman 
saying, all right, I'm moving to Fort Lauderdale, Florida now, or I'm going to IMG just because of this. But that that also has its complications because if you start in January, even in California, that's the height of flu season. So if you're thinking that's the height of flu season plus the height of COVID season, whatever wave we're going to be on, and if there's no vaccine or therapeutics for it, why are we putting why wouldn't we put these players out on the field in the fall but now we will when cases are even higher of now the flu and of covid so there are just so many questions about what's going on the other really thing and concerning one for all of these schools is if we still have an early signing period or if we don't a lot of these players are going to be early enrollees at their colleges and they're going to miss their senior seasons of high school so they would sit through the fall, they would graduate, they would leave in January. Their their senior year of high school would either have kicked off or not even have kicked off until the spring, but they'll already be on a college campus. And if college starts in January or the spring, they would essentially be forced to take their redshirt year. They wouldn't have spring football to just kind of play through and kind of learn the playbook and get used to the physicality of college football. They would be thrown either right on the field when they're legitimately a high school senior or, uh, or, or be forced to redshirt, which brings up an entirely new set of problems, especially for guys that are planning to early enrollee. It almost seems like if you're planning to, and you don't want a red shirt, you should just stay in high school for the extra year because you're essentially almost getting a free year um, to develop physically or to do whatever you want to do because the question then becomes if they're, if they're going to play a college football season, even only conference games, let's say 10 games, then have the playoff or bowl games or whatever they're going to do, they're going to finish this up in, let's say, May or June and then what, ask players to come back and have another season next fall? Yeah. So, so this question could be talked about for en- endlessly, but essentially I get the sense that some players will go elsewhere, but I don't think there's going to be a mass migration uh, out of the state just because, you know, quite honestly, like senior years of guys are important and those things, but I think a lot of those elite guys will just turn their focus to college and get to college as soon as possible. What a mess. Great stuff, Adam. Thanks so much. All right, Brian. I'll talk to you. And that is the podcast. Thanks to Adam Gorney. Thanks again to Isaiah Polamau. Thanks to USC for making Isaiah available. Thanks to everyone who listens to this podcast and motivates me to find great guests each week. And like I said at the top, I already have the next podcast done, and it's, it's a really fun one. I would say it's maybe our highest profile guest we've had all spring slash summer. And it was one that was very high on my list that I wasn't sure if we would get or not. But it came through, and I really enjoyed it. And I think you will, too. We'll aim to get that posted anywhere from Friday to Sunday. So just I'm always keeping everyone apprised on the message board at trojansports.com as to when that stuff's coming. So check there. If you're not subscribed, jump on in. We're cranking out content. We've had just a ton of exclusive stories that you won't find on any other site. Really, since since this pandemic started, we've just not relented and we've tried to find unique angles that people aren't writing about and, and tracking down interviews and putting up the content. 
and obviously we're tracking the final stages of this recruiting class. And I say final stages, it's weird to phrase it that way because signing day is still, what, five-plus months away, early signing day. But with USC having 18 guys already committed, well, publicly at least, uh, the bulk of it's in place, and it's really just chipping away at those final priority targets and, and seeing how many they can close the deal with. Anyways, join us on Trojansports.com, and definitely, definitely come back and listen to the next podcast, and we hope you enjoy it. Thanks.